It's the 15th of April, 2018, and this is episode 363 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. There is no mount. It's empty. Empty. Pronounced empty? Well, it's not that empty anymore. Hey, welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Adam B. Levine. Today I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. So guys, congratulations. You know, I saw that the event in Chicago sold out almost immediately. I, I have to say I had some, you know, kind of high expectations for it, but I think we have officially exceeded them. Yeah, it's awesome. I didn't know what to expect because this is the first time we've ever done anything like this, but hats off to Andreas and all the people who helped organize it. It was really cool to see the tickets blow out the door in the first day <laughs> and then be gone the second day. Yeah, I think it was three and a half days before all of them were gone, but there were a few stragglers in the back, I think, looking for slightly better tickets than the ones in the back row. But don't worry, it's it's one of those slanted amphitheater type theaters, so all the seats are good. Do we have any tickets left on the assisted access or anything like that, or are we 100% sold out at this point? There are three wheelchair spots available, and also there's constant churn. Keep in mind, we have a very liberal refund policy up to the day before the event. And for whatever reason, people's plans change, something comes up, they ask for refunds, and those tickets go immediately on the market. So if you're patient and you keep refreshing and you're committed, you'll get a ticket. And just as another aside, thanks to everybody who's contacted us with interest in kind of participating in this event. We really were overwhelmed by the amount of support and interest, not just from people who wanted to attend, but from people who also wanted to do other stuff with it. As a rule on this event, to keep it simple, we've just turned basically everything down outside of the initial plans. So don't feel bad if we turned you down, maybe next time. So it's been a while since we talked about Mount Gox. As you said, Andreas, empty Gox. And as I said, kind of during the opening, it's a funny thing because although Mt. Gox was empty <laughs> and now has been in bankruptcy for four years, the most likely scenario based on the way things are right now is that Magical Tux or Mark Carpellis, the owner of Mt. Gox at the time that it collapsed, may actually wind up walking away as one of the richest guys in crypto with approximately 160,000 Bitcoin that appear to not be consumed by the bankruptcy process. He'll have to spend about 80% of that on security. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, for sure. So he did an AMA yesterday that I happened to read through. And you know there was some really interesting information in there from his perspective. And he still has all sorts of ongoing legal cases. But at least the appearance is that he is attempting to make this right as quickly as possible and kind of all this other stuff. It's an interesting question, right? Like, so how does Mark Carpellis, who took Mt. Gox into bankruptcy, how does he wind up with all that money? And it's kind of a quirk of the way that bankruptcy actually works in most countries and also in Japan, which is that when the actual bankruptcy occurred, the debts are kind of crystallized at that point. So if you had Bitcoin at Mt. Gox or money at Mt. Gox, then rather than them crediting it to you in Bitcoin or dollars or whatever, they're going to credit to you in the local currency, the yen. And so because of that, I mean, at the time the Mt. Gox went down, I think the Bitcoin was worth about $400 each. So, and it might have even been below that at the actual point that the final collapse and kind of peg price happened. And so now, you know, with prices even at their kind of current lows, quote unquote, of $7,000, $8,000, the amount of appreciation that's occurred there has been just absolutely enormous. 
essentially, if you do the math, that means that if 95% of it was lost to the creditors at the time, that 5% has now appreciated to the point where it's equal to the entire original amount. That's right. That's fascinating how that worked out. Adam, you said this is a quirk of like the bankruptcy system. I wonder if it's a quirk or... <laughs> Feature, not bug. <laughs> Right. Obviously, Bitcoin is a special case, so it magnifies this. But I mean, obviously, it's by design. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. Again, like I think that what bankruptcy is trying to do in most circumstances is trying to make it so that creditors get paid back as kind of fairly as possible, and that companies that do have assets remaining after they become insolvent responsibly dispose of those assets as legally they're required to do so. So if you think about it, if this had been in Bitcoin terms, then in the current environment, it would be impossible to pay it back. But it's also interesting to compare it against what happened with Bitfinex. When Bitfinex was hacked and they lost, I think it was $60 million, something like that. And instead of taking this bankruptcy path, which Mt. Gox was basically forced into, they went this kind of tokenize the loss path. And although it did take time and it was messy and it was probably illegal in a lot of jurisdictions for them to do that. I mean, the outcome does seem to have been better because people who had money stuck within that enterprise actually were able to get it back. We're able to get a little bit of liquidity. You know, at first, I think it was trading for 30 cents, 40 cents on the dollar for tokens that represented, you know, a dollar worth of this debt. But then towards the end of the process, you were actually able to achieve 100% and sometimes better than the value because they had created this situation where there was demand for this debt because people are able to convert it into equity. In the very early days of the Mt. Gox collapse, I worked on a project called GoxCoin that was effectively that sort of mechanism. I thought you were going to bring that up. Yeah, I remember GoxCoin. We did an episode on it, I think, or it was like a roundtable. Yeah, we did. I think we did an episode. I think that was when we were working with Charlie Shrem a lot on stuff, because I remember we did an episode with him kind of digging into the, like, where did all the money at Mt. Gox actually go episode as well. But anyways, yeah, just long and short of it is that it's an interesting situation. And because of that, Although Mark has certainly had a rough time, spent I think about a year in Japanese jail, and I'm sure that wasn't fun. There's so many weird details about all of this stuff and how it conflicts with and interacts with the laws that are not built to support this technology, but they're kind of being used to shoehorn into this technology. So although Mark is entitled, according to the law, to all of this money, what it sounds like he's doing from his responses in this AMA is he's actually trying to push the company back into essentially like a supervised deployment so it can come out of bankruptcy and so that it can disperse its assets to the people who actually have been paid back in yen so far, right? But aren't really entitled, as according to the law, to compensation in the Bitcoin amounts. So he is indicating he's going to do that. And what he's hoping to do is to do it through the bankruptcy process itself or through the legal process itself. Because if the money gets paid to him first, he'll have to pay taxes on all of it before he can then disperse it to everybody else. He said he doesn't have control over those assets. He said it's under the control of a trustee that was court appointed, and he has no control over that process of disbursement. At this time, he doesn't have control. But at some point, once the creditors have been satisfied, they'll release the rest of the funds to him. And what he said in his AMA is that he's going to do a further disbursement, which is, of course, entirely voluntary, and no one can halt into that premise. I really like the idea, though, of bringing the company back. Think about this. He could get to compete against Bitfinex, Kraken, and Coinbase and show the amazing power of PHP. <laughs> I think that that's the situation, is that according to the law, Mt. Gox is going to have satisfied its debts in the relatively near future. 
And it sounds like the last real wild card in all of this is the question of, I don't know if you guys remember Peter Vicenes. The original, I believe, one of the founders of the Bitcoin Foundation had a company called uh, CoinLab. I don't think CoinLab is still around. I haven't heard about it in years. And they partnered early on with Mt. Gox to essentially provide US-type services to Mt. Gox, which was based out of Japan and had trouble historically getting licenses. And there was, I remember we went through this contract at the time, there was a deal basically that said that on failure to performance, there could be a penalty that was assessed. Jonathan, do you remember more details on this than I do? So as I recall it, it was that Peter Vanessa's company was going to turn into the American version of Mt. Gox, and Mt. Gox would turn over all of the American customers to his company to take over that responsibility. And the damage penalty was, I think, like $70 million, which at the time, Bitcoin's market cap was $300 million. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just this absurd number that was just so high that everyone was like, well, that's just obscene. And I mean, now it's just sort of chump change in the world of Bitcoin. I think the last time we talked about this, it was a question of essentially they were both trying to sue each other. They were both saying that each side had kind of violated the terms. And then Mt. Cox actually went into bankruptcy. And that conversation kind of got put on the side, it seems like. But since the increase in price has happened and since the recovery of funds into fiat terms in order to pay back the creditors has happened, now that outstanding lawsuit or issue has become the, the stopping point to kind of move things forward and to move the company actually out of bankruptcy. So in theory, whether or not we see the company actually continue and there be a functional exchange called Mt. Gox again, or we just see the company come out of bankruptcy and then essentially liquidate its assets and unwind to the creditors that it still has. Uh, either way, it seems like a much better outcome than continuing to sit in this limbo for potentially years and years longer. The only difference is for Mark Carpellis or anybody else who is looking at Mt. Gox at this point as perhaps a saving mechanism, right? It's the whole coma play where, <laughs> where the best thing you can do with cryptocurrency is just go into a coma for three years after you buy some and then come back out and see what happened. Well, I, uh, I'd just like to push back on something Andrea said, which is that Mt. Gox is going to compete on their brilliant PHP code because, you know, I, I think we can all agree that they're going to have to rewrite the entire exchange. But really, the value in Mt. Gox starting back up is all of the brand equity and goodwill the company has around them in the community. And that's clearly going to be why they should start back up. Well, if we're going to talk about brand equity, let me clarify again why it's not Mt. Gox, because I think the historical information is useful, especially for people who have not been in the space since 2012. So MT Gox is an acronym and it stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, which is why Mark Carpellis's online handle is Magical Tux, because he was a huge fan of Magic the Gathering, which is a card game that he played with his friends. And he creates an online exchange where you could basically trade these cards. And in an era when there were no exchanges or exchange engines or competent order engines or competent anything, he converted the Magic the Gathering online exchange into a Bitcoin exchange. That is the history, and it gives you a lot of insight into why MTGOX had the problems with security and performance that it did. Ironically, it's even a little bit worse than that, Andreas, because Magical Tux was not the original creator of the uh, MTGOX exchange, as you said. No, he bought it. Yeah, Jed McCaleb, who was also one of the creators of the Ripple protocol, and then also went on to create the Stellar protocol after the fact. But yeah, it was a project from him. So Mark didn't even create the code. He inherited code or he purchased this code 
and then tried to continue to improve it and build on top of it. But you could just see how like layer upon layer of, of this did not help at all. And in fact, it just made it very difficult to tell really what was going on within their system. Jeff McCaleb has a history of creating very interesting companies that then get acquired or that he has no participation in that then go on to do very questionable things after the fact. I'm very interested to see what happens with Stellar. But in my head, in my head canon, I like to think of Jeff McCaleb as the woman that birthed two Hitlers. At some point, Hitler's mom, I'm sure, was a wonderful human being, or to the extent that any human could be wonderful. But at the extent if she had birthed two Hitlers, or God forbid, three Hitlers, at what point do we say, maybe it's not the Hitlers, maybe it's the mother? <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's terrible. <laughs> suffice <laughs> to say, I'm very interested in seeing how Stellar matures in the marketplace. And anytime Jeb McCaleb leaves a startup, what happens in that startup never ends up being a very good thing. I'm calling Godwin. In fact, Godwin cubed because there were three Hitlers in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by EZDNS.com. EZDNS first started sponsoring the Let's Talk Bitcoin show back in 2013, and they fall into the early libertarian adopters camp. In today's world, it doesn't really matter if you're running a blockchain startup or just have an opinion. You want a company who thinks your rights matter at an ideological level. And for my websites, that's EasyDNS. Oh, and for those of you already living in the future, you can pay your bill with Bitcoin or Ethereum. So when you're thinking domains, mail servers, or DNS provisioning, think EasyDNS.com. Now, back to the show. So we just had April Fools recently, which in cryptocurrency, most of the time is actually a pretty tame, mundane. I don't know what the word you use for it is. It's so freaking annoying. Come on. What what got you this year, Andreas? Did you see anything that was actually interesting? Because I didn't really see too much. Mark Jeffovich got me. <laughs> With his article about how digging through domains, he found the original who is information and domain hosted by Satoshi Nakamoto, who was in fact the customer of EasyDNS. There was a full article and then, then it said, uh, you know, see the who is information on page two. And I clicked on that and Rick Astley told me he was never going to give me up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Mark actually contacted us and asked if I would do a thing on that. And I was like, no, I think we're I think we're OK. Well, the funny thing is he got a lot of prominent Bitcoiners who were like, don't go digging and doxing Satoshi. It's not <laughs> good. And <laughs> it was and, and by the way, what kind of DNS service has such poor security and privacy controls for its customers that it ends up doxing them? Right. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, great. Especially Mark. Very sanctimonious fools. Two things that don't mix are April Fool's Day and a space full of people who are often hyper literal and. <laughs> <laughs> and there's money on the line. And yeah. there's money on the line. One of the April Fools that I did come across that was really questionable, I think that was kind of the question was whether or not it was an April Fools joke, was a post by Vitalik Buterin, longtime, you know, Bitcoiner and one of the creators of the Ethereum protocol. Ethereum has kind of done a lot of things differently than Bitcoin. And so it was interesting to see that essentially what Vitalik was proposing is that Ethereum moved from a model where there will continue to be new Ether produced as an incentivization to mining and just for other kind of functions within the ecosystem. Currently, the plan is for that to continue indefinitely. His proposal on April Fool's Day was that we should actually cap it at, I believe it was 120 million? That's correct. Yes, with 95 million already issued. So that gives you an idea of how soon that would be capped. 
Now, relative to how much Ethereum was actually released during the initial token sale versus how much has been mined since then, I think the token sale by far still outweighs the actual amount that's been introduced via mining, yeah. The token sale was about 60 million coins. Yeah, he picked the number to be exactly twice the amount of the initial token sale. That's the cap. Okay. So again, this is brought up in the context of April Fool's because people were like, well, he releases on April Fool's Day. You know, is he serious about this? And kind of the answer to that question was, yes, it's a serious proposal. But the joke for him, at least that he said, is that, you know, he wants to see if people take it seriously, because if it's a good idea, then it should be adopted whether or not Vitalik is proposing it. And again, the concern trolling about that and many of the things we just talked about having it happening on Satoshi happened there, which is, you know, how can he step out and talk about this? How can he, you know, make a proposal like this? Does he just want to be just like Bitcoin? Is he concerned about value and kind of all of these other things? So he was joking about something he wants you to take seriously. That's right. <laughs> I think that's not joking then. <laughs> it's like, I think that's the opposite, like input, output. What is this humor? Explain it to me. But this question about Ethereum's mining and its hash rate and its transition to Casper has been an ongoing debate and fight. And I remember when Ethereum was talking about including its difficulty bomb. And before they got to the difficulty bomb, they thought of this atrociously dumb idea of an inflation bomb, which was the idea of let's just pick a specific block and then have the block rewards increase infinitely to the point where you're so diluted that you have to go to a chain where the inflation bomb didn't exist. And then they walked it back to a difficulty bomb which was the notion that the difficulty of mining a block basically increases to the point where you halt the ability to produce new transactions. And every single time that they get anywhere close to when they set the line in the sand to, they push it back out again. And this is because they keep trying to flirt with how to transition a proof of work network to a proof of stake network. And every single time they get to the point where they drew a line in the sand, they cave and they push it forward. It's almost like the debt ceiling. Yes. <laughs> in the U.S. You know, that was always a sticking point for me when I remember hearing about Ethereum from the very beginning. It was like they just didn't seem to have like a very solid plan for the whole mining and the algorithm that was going to be used. And like, to me, that's a really foundational thing. Well, actually, they do have a solid plan. I think the solid plan is to deliberately allow these things to be flexible and get input from the community and not tie into a rigid monetary policy or even a rigid consensus algorithm. I think that was always the plan. Okay, well, fair enough. For some people, that makes them uncomfortable, I guess. Is not having a rigid consensus plan the same as not having governance or integrity? Or am I misunderstanding? <laughs> you, you just plan to not have a plan, Jonathan. That's the plan. <laughs> you, just, you just need to be very flexible about every core value that your network has and like the market will like it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there is something to be said for the fact that we don't know the right answer to these questions. You can definitely see how, from the perspective of the Ethereum chain, right, if you want to grow that thing, you need to solve hard problems that don't really exist yet. And if you know that there are economic incentives that are lined up against any shift like this, then I, you know, I could see myself putting together a plan that would do the same thing, that would effectively have a doomsday device that, unless it actively gets pushed back, detonates, right? Because then it creates this kind of point where you can have inflection, right? Where you can have something mattering. You can say, okay, now's the time we're going to switch. And if you don't switch, whereas in Bitcoin, what we've done is we do things like user-activated soft fork, which in many ways have similar characteristics. That's the context. 
think about when all of this came to being, right? This all happened in 2014, the difficulty bomb decisions and everything else, which was right about the beginning of the very contentious discussion in Bitcoin over block sizing that was leading to an obvious stalemate where nothing would change unless everybody reached consensus. I think it was very deliberate to add the difficulty bomb to avoid precisely that. It requires change. It doesn't tell you which way that change is going to go, but it does require change. The problem with the difficulty bomb is that it's a red line that they keep letting go through and there's no follow-up on. So the fundamental issue that Ethereum has is transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake. And what they're realizing is that the more you model humans, the more you have human problems. And the fundamental problem Ethereum has in transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake is they want to fire a bunch of people who are making money doing something that they want to say, hey, we want you to no longer make money doing this. You mean the miners. Right. And they keep looking at different ways to effectuate a jobs mandate in their protocol. Well, can we create a hybrid? Can we this? Can we that? How can we keep paying these people who we need their permission to change the system in a way that will reduce their income? And there are two very interesting things that are happening right now to that effect. One is this proposal of a hard cap, and the hard cap is another difficulty bomb, except instead of attacking the difficulty rate, you're attacking the block reward. And the other is that Bitmain has just created Ethereum ASICs. And that's lodged a whole other debate about whether there should be a hard fork specifically to stop Ethereum ASICs by changing the proof of work algorithm to something that is memory hard or something like that. It gets worse than that, because I think that now that they're ASICs, it might even be too late. Because what is an ASIC versus a GPU? A GPU is a generalized processor that you can apply to many things in the real world or use for cryptocurrency. What's an ASIC? An ASIC is an application-specific circuit that you run until it stops making you money and the electricity cost of it is more than just keeping the thing running indefinitely. At which point it's a silicon heap of scrap. But what I'm saying is that when Ethereum was GPU mineable, your switching costs on the loss of your capital expenditure wasn't that great because you could redeploy graphics cards anywhere. When this market switches over to ASICs, they're never going to stop mining Ethereum. It doesn't matter how you switch it, how you change it, they will always mine Ethereum. You might fork it and they might not be on the canonical fork, but they're going to be mining with their ASICs because that's all you can do with ASICs. Which is part of the argument for Bitcoin's use of ASICs, because what it does is it creates an established sunk cost for miners who really, really have to be careful how they mess with consensus and economic majority because they have this billion dollar infrastructure they've deployed which they need to gradually depreciate and not write off. And so difficulty bombs have been proven to not work because they keep blowing past them. So how do you combat ASICs? Well, the only way to combat an ASIC would be to put a decreasing in the block reward to the point where it caps out. So taking a step back now that we have the context here, would a cap change anything about Ethereum to you? Like, I feel like the reasons I'm interested in Ethereum are not necessarily because of its fundamental soundness characteristics, right? Or its fundamental limited supply characteristics. I've come to grips with the fact that that isn't what Ethereum is. And I don't know if a change like this would really impact how I feel about it. I feel like it's useful in the ways that it's useful and the supply doesn't really change too much. I guess it changes the investable dynamic of it a little bit, but I don't know how much. I would agree with that, but I think it's really interesting how not funny this joke was. It was about as not funny as Elon Musk on the same day saying that they're using uh, chapter 11, 13, and 14 and a half of the bankruptcy laws 
for Tesla, which I think immediately afterwards dumped eight percent because it's too close to the truth. Some jokes are a bit too nudge nudge wink wink joking not joking, and they reveal kind of or project some inner narrative. And I think that's why it wasn't particularly funny when Elon Musk said it, and it wasn't particularly funny when Vitalik said it, because there is an underlying debate in this particular topic, and there is quite a bit of disagreement over it. On a recent episode, a couple of recent episodes actually, we've mentioned that all satoshis are fake satoshis by definition, and that's one thing that's really different about Bitcoin compared to really everything else out there. But I would say Ethereum, maybe Monero with Fluffy Pony. Just in terms of like having a real head of thought process that also does large contributions to the development and is working on different kind of long-term initiatives. I think the word you're looking for is benevolent dictator for life. Yeah, there you go, benevolent dictator for life. Like all good decentralized protocols need. It's a huge test of character, a huge test of maturity, and a huge test of someone's propensity to power. And I would not want to have to take that test because it's one that's very easy to fail when you have so much power accumulating one person. Honestly, I think the only person who is currently passing that test quite well over the last several years is Satoshi Light, Charlie Lee. I think he's done a remarkable job in that respect of not letting it go to his head. Recently, India announced that they are in the process of exploring new blockchain technologies, and that they think that there's some real potential here to have major efficiencies and major savings relative to the way that they currently print money. They think it's going to save them a lot of ink and a lot of paper, and really, they're they're very excited, kind of, for this innovative technology that can help them print money a little bit faster, a little bit more cheaply. I mean, they really like decentralization. They're only about two letters off the D part. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, is that the joke? Well, the joke is that India is effectively trying to do a China-style ban, which means that it looks big and scary. It makes it illegal for traditional institutions and financial institutions to interact with people who deal with cryptocurrency or to deal with it directly themselves. But they see a lot of potential in the technology, like I said, because they think that when they issue a fiat cryptocurrency for India by the central bank, that it will save the central bank money and it will represent some meaningful efficiencies there. So that's funny because they could have saved themselves a lot of money on ink and paper by not getting rid of the higher value rupee notes out of circulation and causing all these bank runs, you know, and making people hold small bills and things like that. But in that case, Modi wouldn't have won the election in such a huge landslide. I mean, you've got to look at the benefits of that move. Well, the benefits for who, right? For Modi, of course. Yeah, that's all that matters. I think that this is a trend that we are increasingly seeing. Right? Is that it used to be the governments were like, "What the heck is this?" And then for a while they were like, "Yeah, I don't get that. We don't want anything to do with that. We're interested in theory, but not really so much." And now I'm starting to see kind of more and more jurisdictions. Indicate that actually the part of the technology that they like is that it's a more efficient way to do what they already do. Right? We've got this great system that we like, fiat money, and we'd like to then create cryptocurrencies out of it because people are excited about cryptocurrencies and the blockchain has advantages. Blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, they're not actually changing anything about the underlying system that makes their money problematic in the first place. And so, is there anything that we can expect from experiments that essentially take cryptocurrency and just slap it in place of where they would be normally using paper bills? Surveillance, corruption, and the final death blow to democracy in both China and India, if any such institutions can be said to exist in both of those countries. 
I mean, look at what's happening. You've got China that is going to do its own cryptocurrency, and their basis or model is Sesame, which is a political credit score that they use to decide if you've said enough good things online about the system in social media, and if you haven't have said things that they don't approve of. They deny you access to things like airlines, transportation, public services, and government jobs. That's how they're using credit scores. How do you think they're going to use a cryptocurrency? Pivot over to India, where their current global authentication system called Aadhaar, or as I like to pronounce it, HackMe, which is a centralized database with biometrics on a billion and a half people, made mandatory, centrally controlled. Has already been hacked and leaked hundreds of millions of identities. Is embroiled in massive corruption scandals and is a security nightmare. That is their model for citizen identification that they're going forward with. What do you think they're going to do with applying cryptocurrency to their money? None of it's good. If cryptocurrency and something specifically like Bitcoin is a global opt-out, it seems like they're right to be afraid of it. It seems like if what they want to do, if their priority is to keep the system the way that it is now. Increasingly, the comments that we're seeing from central banks and governments about how these systems could really destabilize kind of global currencies, like that, actually seems like that's a real fear. And while maybe four years ago it was highly hypothetical, at this point it seems like it's increasingly not hypothetical. I think the most fascinating thing about India right now is that they already have a means of opting out from the system, and it is probably the most embedded in the Indian culture, and that is gold. Ownership of gold is concentrated in this world, and in terms of retail ownership, the largest owners of gold in the world are Indian women who pass on generational wealth in the form of dowries that are literally worn in total as these immense collections of gold jewelry that weighs down a bride so much she needs assistance to walk up the aisle. I'm not kidding. If you've ever seen a wedding in India, that's exactly how it works. The entire Generation's wealth is being worn by that woman. That's how they pass dowries down, and they hoard gold in every form, and they don't trust money and haven't trusted money for generations. Andreas, I think the word you're looking for is savings. Very good. Now, what happens when people suddenly discover that there are forms of gold that can also be emailed? And I think that's what really happened in the early days, at least with Bitcoin. A lot of speculative attention, of course, but some people started making the connection to digital gold. And because there have been a number of successive crackdowns on ownership and registration and transportation, import and export of gold in India, it's seen as a great way to bypass currency controls. And so, of course, yeah, I mean, the government—I can see why they might be afraid of this. But the truth is that by shutting down the banking systems of exchanges that are following the current regulations. All they're doing is pushing it underground and offshore. Right now, all of the exchanges in India are following the rules, and in fact, they're likely partners to the governments. They're quite happy to help them fight criminal activities and things like that. And by shutting them off, they're not really stopping Bitcoin. They're simply moving it underground. Does anyone else feel like amazed sometimes at how institutions like banks and governments can? Take something like the technology of Bitcoin and twist it around to take all the fun out of it and to take all the benefits out of it. They're like, "Oh, look, we can save on paper and ink." Well, I mean, obviously that's not all they want to do. That they like to, you know, use it to increase their control over the population, as we were saying. Right, but that's what they're talking about. 
But yeah, is any, does anyone else just feel like dumbfounded when they hear a statement like that? Technologies can be used for good and bad. And I look at what the internet has achieved and what everyone in the 80s and 90s said it would do. And it's given us the craziest, most totalitarian form of 1984 could ever hope to be. Maybe this whole blockchain experiment 20, 30 years from now will create the greatest form of Orwellian 1984 in money that we even thought was possible. Yeah, that's a really great point. And yet it also creates the platform that we have to discuss these ideas. So it's a double-edged sword for sure. It's not all bad. It's not all good. It's a bit of a mixed bag like every technology. You know, a lot of times when we see governments talking about cryptocurrencies, they comment that they're not legal tender. And legal tender laws, they're laws put in place by governments that say that you have to accept this form of value as money in using this system of valuing that money, right? So if you have a dollar bill and it says $1 on it, then legal tender laws say that a business has to accept it as being worth $1. That used to be the definition of legal tender. You'll see it on silver certificates where it's all debt, public and private. It no longer says that on a dollar bill. It, legal tender in modern times means that it is the only currency that is recognized for the satisfaction of public debt, meaning you have to pay your taxes in it. That's it. The private companies are allowed to refuse to take it, as you will find. Take a flight with United Airlines and try to pay with cash, see what happens. They're not only a private entities allowed to refuse it, but they're also allowed to take other forms of payment instead. So legal tender doesn't mean that. I like to use the other analogy, which is in the era of a horseless carriage, it's like saying that a horseless carriage is not veterinarian approved. That's what it's like. Thank you for that clarification. So the thing about legal tender laws in the way that they're being brought up in these articles, oftentimes is being used as a way to say that this is not legitimate money. But the point that you just made, Andreas, actually even further kind of reinforces my thinking about this in general, which is that legal tender laws are not at all required for something to actually be useful as money, whether or not the government determines that it's legally money. Because again, it's like if I have a truckload of bananas, right, then that could be valuable to me for lots of different reasons. But the government doesn't consider it legal tender. I can't pay my taxes with bananas. And yet this thing can still have value. So is that just like a total non sequitur that's being put into these things? It's kind of like a, you know, like a scare you off, but don't actually help you understand what, what's scary about it? I don't think it's a matter of scaring off. I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding, which is that until now, most of the people in most of these environments have only ever seen money that has been institutionally granted stature because of fiat, because of government decree. They only know fiat money from a government. Therefore, they cannot make the distinction between something that has value and something that is decreed by government. Therefore, anything that hasn't been decreed, by definition, isn't money. They can't make that logical leap to see that value can be created privately. And when they can't make that logical leap, they're like, oh, well, this is worthless, obviously, because we didn't say it has value, so therefore it is worthless. For most of the people saying this, what they're saying is, if it's not legal tender, it's not money, therefore it has no value. That train of thought isn't logical and it, it isn't supported by the facts, but that's where they're coming from. I think it's important to clarify that what happened in India was not a ban and hasn't been a ban, although it's been declared a ban five or six times, just like what happened in China. So the latest in this is over the past six months, the local exchanges have been playing a sort of cat and mouse game with banks that have been unilaterally closing their accounts, as they call it, they're de-risking. 
but basically snuffing out the competition. <laughs> now that is coming to a head. What just happened is the central bank, the RBI, just sent a circular to all of the member banks, which are all the national banks in India, which are owned by the state, advising them that they should cease all relationships with VC, virtual currency as they call it, exchanges and operators in the country. And that simply means that either they're going to continue playing this cat and mouse game, or gradually they're going to shut down all of the remaining bank accounts, which will push it to other payment networks. Then they'll shut those down, and then you'll have essentially offshore channels, wire transfers, cash, and other mechanisms, and it will push it underground. But the exchanges won't stop operating, and Bitcoin is still perfectly legal to buy. You just can't buy it with a bank account very easily. So back in 2013, it was really scary to try to get some Bitcoin. You didn't know if your personal bank account would be closed down, and BitInstant didn't really work, and Coinbase was a piece of. We didn't even know that Bitcoin was going to be legal or illegal in America. For people who are new to cryptocurrencies, it wasn't until November of 2013 that we even knew if Bitcoin, in and of itself, was illegal. So there was a very different understanding of the risks that you took by trying to be in the space or be in it full time. One of the conversations that the New York community had was this idea of, look, we don't know which way the pendulum's going to swing in America. Two people meeting in a park to engage in commerce is something that, in the ten thousand years of civilization, no government has ever been able to stop. So we sort of, as a community, came up with this idea of a Satoshi Square. This idea of meeting up at a park and getting a community to go together. So you had this trust network of twenty or thirty people. So even new people could come. But feel safe with a transaction, and then just have these open air markets for trading Bitcoin. You felt safe bringing cash because there were thirty or forty of us there, and transactions would occur. And that's how we did OTC trades. You had people who had their Chase accounts closed, or people who bought Coinbase transactions. It took three days, and then Coinbase would reverse it. And for a time there, it actually was the best product that you could get was to go to this OTC market and buy some Bitcoin in a park. Maybe what India is looking at right now is that the reemergence of that or the emergence of that would probably most maximally suit that type of environment. Because regardless of you know if India eventually catches up with that type of understanding that Bitcoin should be legal or illegal, those webs of trust are something that stick with you forever, and those are always very valuable regardless. Well, I'd like to predict how it's going to play out and give you a scenario. I think one of the most useful applications of this technology, especially in India, is for the payments of outsourced workers, contractors, web developers, system administrators, office administrators, virtual admins, etc. This entire human resource potential industry that is the backbone of the IT industry in India. And that involves a lot of foreign companies sending money to India. It's a significant part of their GDP. Now, I started using Bitcoin with Indian subcontractors in 2013, paying people in India in Bitcoin. One of the interesting things that's happened lately over the last six months as they close bank accounts is the premium for rupees has gone up about 20%. Which means that if you want to buy Bitcoin with rupees, you pay a 20% premium because rupees are worth less because you can't export them. And because Bitcoin is difficult to import, so that's the premium paid. As the bank accounts close, this premium is going to go up. And what that means is, if you're a contractor who gets paid in India from an employer outside of India, and you take Bitcoin instead, you can very, very easily sell that Bitcoin 
at a cash market for 20, 25, 30, who knows, maybe even a 100% markup to locals who can't get it any other way. So what this is going to do is encourage the one industry that really could use cryptocurrencies right now, and that's the outsourcing industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Next week I'll be traveling, so there won't be any new episode, but the following week we'll be back with a recording from our live five-year anniversary show in Chicago. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.